Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Many a romance was born in a restaurant kitchen. After all, whether you're a chef or restaurateur, first, you're married to the restaurant, often spending more time there than with loved ones at home. No wonder so many successful industry marriages combine love and work. Inspired by Valentine's Day, we're taking a good look at some of the industry's working marriages. Chef Susan Spicer met her husband Chip Martinson on the job. Chip was a chef before he and Susan married, and his career focus shifted slightly. Chip's still in the business, but in a whole new way. And Brennan's executive chef, Slade Rushing, found love in the kitchen, too. From their first romantic Valentine's Day on the job, Slade and his wife, Allison Vines Rushing, have worked the line, opened restaurants together, and now are finding ways to combine family life with restaurant life. They'll tell us all about how they make it work. And what about Galentine's Day? We'll explore that new holiday, too. All in the name of love, on this week's Louisiana Eats. What makes a New Orleans chef an icon? In a town known for its celebrity chefs and venerable institutions, it takes more than innate talent and an odd TV appearance. To reach the status of icon, a chef's life and achievements must make an impact on the world and capture people's imaginations. Susan Spicer is a New Orleans culinary icon. Not that you'll hear her say so herself. Back in 1998, the New York Times dubbed Susan the quiet star of New Orleans, noting the famous chef has a self-deprecating, understated style, but doesn't go unnoticed. Susan's instantly recognizable thanks to the bands she wears across her forehead when she cooks. Since 1979, the unflappable chef has become one of the city's most celebrated and popular culinary figures. Susan co-founded her flagship French Quarter restaurant, Bayona, in 1990, earning the James Beard Award three years later. She's written an award-winning cookbook, appeared on Top Chef, and inspired a character on the HBO series Treme. In addition to Bayona, she's now the owner of restaurants Mondo and Rosedale. An outpost of Mondo is slated to open at Louis Armstrong International Airport this spring. Susan, what a treat it is to sit down with you in the Louisiana Eats studio and talk about your amazing journey as a chef. You know, you're one of my great heroes because you were blazing the trail for women in the kitchen 
just at about the same time I was beginning to entertain a life in food myself. How did this all get started? Well, you know, as I've said before, I I did a lot of things badly until (laughs) I tried a lot of, you know, looking for something. And I happened into cooking through a girlfriend of mine, and it satisfied all my cravings, really, you know, which was for something creative, something physical, something uh, social. It just hit a lot of things. And, you know, I seemed to have an aptitude for it. It came together like 10 years after I got out of high school. So, you know, a little bit come from a family of late bloomers. And, uh, you know, it's taken us a while to find what we do. But it just it, it was very natural. The food was in your blood, though, I think, because your mother She's is a great cook. quite a great cook. Yeah. And one of the things I think you're known for is your international flair with food. Don't you think that that had something to do with how you grew oh, up? Oh, it had a lot to do with that, yeah. My mom was Danish. She grew up in South America. We lived in the Netherlands where she learned Indonesian cooking. And, yeah, so – Dining was always an adventure in our family. And I'm one of seven kids, and we all love food. We all, you know, thanks to my mom. She did it, I say, effortlessly. I mean, she cooked for nine people every day. She gave a lot of dinner parties. And she never seemed to approach it as if it were drudgery. So that helps. So you're uh, 26 years old. You figured out the food thing. How does the journey begin? Well, my first job was with Pamela Calhoun at Girton's, that lunch restaurant in the um, ICB Bank building at 300 St. Charles. I think it was 300 or 333 St. Charles, from which we both got fired. But um, (laughs) then I started with Danielle Bonneau at the Louis XVI, and that was in the Marie Antoinette Hotel down in the French Quarter on Toulouse Street. And it was really, I think, the first true French restaurant that wasn't French Creole, I I would think. I imagine that the time that you spent with Danielle Bonneau was sort of, in some ways, like a traditional European apprenticeship. It was. I had to bug him a lot, though. You know, he wanted to ignore me for a while, but I asked a lot of questions and I would always go up and check out all the books. And I was like, can you use tarragon and mushrooms in the same, you know, stuff like that. And he was like, and then he would start taking me on, like when he would be doing cooking classes or demonstrations or stuff. And then, you know, he would do a couple of things and then he would go, and now Suzanne is going to show you how to make the creme brulee. And I would be going like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And he would go, shut up and do it. You know, so that was kind of his (laughs) gentle you know, way of uh, guiding me uh, was shut up and do it. And then Danielle, well, he went on to become food and beverage manager for Mark Smith in the small hotel, local hotel company. Um, and they bought the St. Charles Hotel. And that's when we opened uh, Savoir Faire, which was in 1982. And they gave me my first chef position, which I thought they were nuts, but they oh, said, I, you know. Do you believe that you first began to get most of your n- major notice early at Savoir Faire, or did it really start to come together for you? Well, at- I think the locals started coming to Savoir Faire. And I, I really believe that, you know, 
the out-of-towners always want to know where the locals eat. That's, yeah, I would say that's where I started getting, you know, attention from outside of New Orleans. Savoie Fair was, was mostly a local restaurant. It was a wonderful It was restaurant. a nice old place. I, yeah, I, I liked it. <laughs> it was just so cool because it was like anything goes. I remember doing brains and eggs, you know, at, at brunch at Savoie Fair. You know, Moroccan, sort of like a shakshuka kind of thing, but with brains. <laughs> Danielle would let me do anything I wanted. So it was really fun. It was a, that was a real voyage of discovery, my first chef position. And, you know, being, as I say, Charles in charge, it was, uh, you know, it was tough. Well, you know, with that always comes some startling mistakes. What's something that has stuck with you that you're like, oh, my goodness? Um, you know, it wasn't so much a colossal mistake. It was more just how terrified I was to be the one that people came to that I was supposed to have all the answers. And I just, you know, just didn't feel like I was that person. <laughs> you know, it it was a it was it was a just proving a development. Ground. Yes, it was. It was a proving ground and it just it was so hard to finally get to the point where I thought, oh, you know, this is why I'm the chef because I have standards and I'm willing to stick to them. And, you know, some of these people, they don't feel that same way. You know, Danielle would teach me, you know, that it had to be right. And I realized that it wasn't so much just like my, you know, fabulous creativity or whatever. It was just, you know, having having standards and making sure that things were right and being willing to stand your ground. It, it took a while. It was like a metamorphosis, I guess, is the word I was searching for. And then you were at the Maison de Ville. Yeah. That's right. And you spent a little time working in restaurants in the French Quarter. How do you end up with your own restaurant in the French Quarter? That happened because the Maison de Ville was just so tiny. And it really, people would get really aggravated, I guess, because it was kind of a hot ticket, you know, at a certain point. In 89, I think, is when I got the food and wine best new chef thing, which was still kind of a new... I think it was only the second year that they awarded it. That was the start of the whole, you know, celebrity chef, whatever, you know, you want to call it. What it kind of was, you know, and it came with a lot of perks. And it came with a lot of people wanting to go there because they knew your name, not because, you know, for whatever reason. And then people started saying, oh, you know, let's open a restaurant together. I want to put you in a bigger place. I want to do this and that. And and then, you know, I met Regina Kieber. And we looked around for um, some locations to maybe expand, you know, do something bigger. You know, it just kind of came about pretty quickly. And when did you open? That was uh, end of March 1990. And then in no time short, you get the James Beard Award. Three years. Three years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, believe me, I was very, very proud of that. It's wonderful to be recognized by your peers. It's kind of, you know, the Beard Award is what it is. Susan, when you think back and look around, who are the women in the other kitchens? Who else? Because, you know, I don't really see you getting peers until mm, later. Well, Agnès Bellet was, you know, working. She wasn't a chef yet, but she was, you know, working at the St. Louis. Um, eh, 
I'm trying to think. You know, there, there was, wasn't anybody. I can't Susan. remember. I just can't no, remember. no, I'm no, sure there no, was. no. I think well, you know, and Joanne had opened up her line the same when we, op- you know, right around the time that we opened. Um, you know, so maybe they weren't like chefs, but you know, there yeah. were women doing things. You forged the way. You win the James Beard Award, and Bayona Ta-da. just becomes. One of the things that New Orleans is really proud of. Well, thank you, you. From those very early days, it was the place to go. Well, and now the challenge is, you know, it's a little bit ironic because when you have been around for a long time, when you're trying to hire staff and stuff, it's kind of like, eh, we don't want to go work for that old place, you know. So you have to try to stay relevant without being trendy I personally feel that that's one of the secrets to Susan Spicer's food is that you have it exactly laid out, exactly as it should be. And if you follow the directions and and do what the boss tells you, everything's going to be, it's going to have a continuity. It's going to, because consistency is everything, isn't it? Well, I think it's important, but isn't there an expression that says consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds or something? So, you know, but yes, I think it's important to be consistent. And we do have signature items that I'm very proud of and that I will continue to do. But I still like to hear my chefs, you know, new ideas. And even if I go like, "Mm, you know, I wouldn't make that myself, but let's check it out and see. Oh, all right. Oh, you know, that's really, that's delicious. It's good. I wouldn't have thought of it. You know, so I try to keep an open mind and we do try to, you know, evolve. I don't want to just rest on laurels. When we come back from a short break, our conversation with Chef Susan Spicer continues. And we'll meet her husband, one-time chef and now furniture maker, Chip Martinson. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets. From Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecue oyster Poor Boy, and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with iconic New Orleans chef Susan Spicer. After a decade successfully operating her French Quarter restaurant, Bayona, in 2000, Susan focused her energies on a new venture in the Central Business District. Along with two partners, Susan opened a small bistro called Herb Saint, stewarding it through its early years. Running the kitchen was an up-and-coming young chef named Donald Link. 
Yeah, so Donald had worked for me before, and then he moved back to town, and I was kind of casting around for something else to do in the warehouse district because it was really starting to percolate down there, and I liked it. You know, I I had great confidence in Donald as a chef and a partner, and, and so it was really a stepping stone for him, and it just got to a point where it was kind of silly. I was at Bayona, and I would come over to Herb Sane and... You know, Donald would have been there all day, like, working his butt off, and, and then people would come to me and go, like, oh, Susan, this was so great. Thank you. And it just started to feel <laughs> uncomfortable to me because he was really the managing partner and the working chef. And I, you know, so that was good. It became his restaurant. And I still was a partner there until um, after Katrina. And then at what point does Mondo come along? 2000? No, 2010. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Seems like it was earlier than that, but no, June of, of 2010. Yeah, because Mondo really became part of the rebuilding right. of the lakefront. Of, yeah, but of, when you think, you know, that was already five years after Katrina. You, you know? have to think how horrible it was yeah. to put it all in yeah, context. I, I believe me, I remember. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that's your neighborhood. Yeah, that was you, my my house. Yeah. yeah, you had plenty of that. And that's, you know, you've got this incredible career and somehow or another, you didn't get married for a really long, long time. No. Nope. Tell me how you avoided marriage and then how marriage found you. Well, I always felt like I'd be sort of the career gal, you know, which I was. And, you know, I mean, it was important for me to have something I could do and that I was good at. I mean, I think it was just kind of... I'm sure it was my dad's influence. My mom was just a lover of life and wanted us all to be happy. My father always wanted us to have a career, wanted us to, you know, do something and support ourselves and be independent. So I was pulled in both ways and and happily. I was very happy in my career choice. And so it was never anything like I didn't want to get married or whatever. I just, you know, I never met the right person. And then I met the right person. That was the most amazing thing. You married Chip, and Chip came complete with kids even. Yes. I always say, you know, I got a husband, two kids, and a dog all in one day. So, (laughs) you know, it was a big change. It was a big change, and it happened at a wonderful time where I had, you know, was able to devote myself to my career and build that and then still end up with a family. Well, I love your husband, too. I just think he's the greatest guy. He had a background in culinary, too. Yes, he did. Wasn't he cooking when you met him? Yeah, he was at GW Fins. He opened GW Fins with Tenny. And that, you know, that all worked out really well because when we got married and he had his two children, he said, you know, we both said, well, one of us should get out of the restaurant business, you know, so that we can be there for the kids. And I was like, well, you know what? I don't know how to do anything else. And he said, well, I'd like to try my hand at making furniture. I'm like, okay, sounds good. Go for it. Now, you know, they're grown and, you know, moved out of the house for empty nesters. And I should be slowing down. And that's not going to happen. No, no. But, you know, I want, I love my husband. I want to oh, of course. spend more time with him. I do. You know, he's a hard worker, too. But, of course, opening a third restaurant is not an exit strategy. No, Susan, it's not. No, it's which not. Which is, you know, so you, <laughs> if Rosedale comes along, that's And I thought you'd sworn off ever opening another restaurant. How the heck did that happen? I fell in love with the building. That's all it was. And then Chip really liked it. Yes. 
my husband would say, I'm addicted. I'm a workaholic. <laughs> Has there ever been a time when you thought, maybe I'm just going to quit? Like, we just we just heard you talk about the exit strategy. But, you know, there have been some pretty big bumps. I mean, there was the bump of Katrina. Yeah. That then was there a was, pretty you know, big And bump. even the, the, the BP- oil spill, that was horrific. That yeah. was really horrific. Um, but, you know, do I want to just quit? Well, there never nah. was a time. No, no never just like, I'm just going to quit. You know, I mean, you know, I would say other challenges of like staffing, you know, and I know that every generation has always said, you know, and we've been saying it for a long time, oh, these kids today and all that, you know, have no work ethic. But, you know, it's hard now even to get people to show up for an interview or if they show up for the interview and they say they'll come in for a trail, you know, will they show up? It, you know, they're looking for better work environment, which is good, but it's important for people to participate and give back. <laughs> Two, you got to work for things, I think. For me, my deal was just focus on the food and kind of everything else sort of fell away. I had I worked with guys that didn't want women in the kitchen and were rude or badgered me or whatever, but I just focused on what I was doing. I thought about the food. I didn't worry so much about what the environment was, you know, you just came in and did the work and the work was very satisfying. And that's where I got my fulfillment from, you know, it was from doing a good job. And I just never paid that much attention to the rest of it, I guess. I don't, but I don't know if that's exceptional or, you know, what. It's Well, look at the success that it has brought you. And I was going to ask you if you had any words of advice for um, people entertaining the thought of a life in the kitchen. Well, I think we are moving towards a point where you have to sacrifice less. I think that's happening. As much as it's a habit with me, I wish I didn't work as much as I do. I wish I could kind of make myself not do it. I'm striving towards that. I (laughs) promise, Chip. Um, So I think there is kind of a cultural movement where, you know, it's not going to be the all-absorbing, (laughs) life-sucking career thing. But it is rewarding, and there's nothing like it. And there's nothing like the camaraderie and and the fellowship. Great camaraderie, and also, you know, your customers that become friends and family, and the kooky people that work in restaurants are always amusing from the front to the back to the dishwashers. And, you know, it's a kind of a nutty bunch. That's where I have gotten a lot of my joy. Chef and New Orleans icon, Susan Spicer. (laughs) 
Susan Spicer's husband, Chip Martinson, worked in the restaurant industry for 27 years. And then, one day, he wanted out. Strangely enough, it was in a restaurant that Chip found his true calling. What started with building some tables for his wife Susan's Lakeview restaurant, Mondo, evolved into a full-fledged furniture business, facetiously named Monkey with a Fez. Today, Chip's custom pieces can be seen at Donald Link's restaurants, at Coquette, and at Elizabeth's, just to name a few. Chip invited us into his bustling Bywater workshop, where an affable crew of furniture builders are fueled by an ever-rotating soundtrack of rock and roll and New Orleans funk. I began by asking Chip how he discovered his craft. It was, uh, it was an accident. Started, uh, my wife wanted to build a new restaurant. My wife is Susan Spicer, and uh, she wanted to build a new restaurant in uh, Lakeview, so... I think I can make some tables. And so we made the tables and then started doing some other stuff. And I do think that it's worth note that that restaurant where you made those first tables would be Mondo on Harrison Avenue. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's where we can go see your, your virgin attempt. Ones, yeah, yeah. The first ones, yeah. Yeah, all of it, yeah. What, what did you learn doing that work at Mondo for Susan? I mean, I've been in the restaurant business for so long. I knew how a mop worked. I knew what uh, restaurant people were looking for in their furniture. I knew this, you know, I knew what chefs wanted and I knew how to make things to, that would last and be conducive to restaurant stuff, not stuff that would break the next day. Or Everybody here that works for me has been in the kitchen too, one capacity or another. And it seems to be conducive to furniture building for some reason. You know, the knives and everything else, everybody still has their fingers. I think it's because of, you know, restaurant industry kind of stuff and the work ethic, too. Working with chefs was a lot easier than working with anybody else, and it's what I've done for forever. So that's, you know, that's what I learned. So it all starts at Mondo. And then, of course, Donald Link and Susan Spicer, good right. friends. Right, right. So does Donald come out to Mondo and go, wow, those are cool tables? Or how does the transition happen that you get your next build out? I don't know. I think we were, you know, drinking. drinking. <laughs> Probably at a, how did I know at that? A bar, a restaurant or something. And he asked if, you know, I'd be interested in it. I think, I think that's how it happened, you know. But he's always known. He's a force of nature. He's always known exactly what he wanted anyway. So probably, you know told me to do the tables more like it probably <laughs> that and was the chairs we did chair the first chairs I've ever done was there and you know since then that that chair that we've done the Lafayette Cochon chair which is different from somebody else made the chairs at the the original Cochon um here in town but we made the chairs a little bit different since then we sold at least 3,000 of those chairs all over the country we've sold them in Las Vegas, we sold a bunch in up in New York uh, to a, a good customer up there. There was a, a bunch of his dinosaur barbecue, John Stage, up in New York, and we sold them all over the all over the city and all over the country. It's a it's a really popular, durable, great chair, really comfortable too. What goes into making a really good restaurant chair? 
So the first thing about it is a mop has to go be able to go under the chair, and our rule is six inches for a mop to be able to go under there. It has to be stackable. It has to be comfortable first. It has to have a look, whatever that look may be. To you know, to, the chair would follow what the rest of the restaurant looks like. You know, so it comfortable. It has to be durable, stackable, and kind of bulletproof. You know, with Donald also at Pesh. I was talking to Julian Van Winkle, the Van Winkle whiskey guy, and we were out of the corner of my eye. I was looking at this whiskey barrel and started talking about availability of whiskey barrels. And he's like, you're never going to get a a, um, Van Winkle barrel, but you can find these whiskey barrels. So I took a, I got a whiskey barrel and we started, we made the chairs at Pesh with the whiskey barrels. They were Jim Bean. And I think there are a couple of um, Van Winkle barrels in there, but they're mostly you know, Jim Bean and some, some wild turkey and everything else. But uh, we made a comfortable, durable chair, you know, really, really cool kind of chair. We did uh, another chair at Coquette that I'm really proud of. There was a um, 250-year-old Creole chair at the Gabildo that I'd liked for years and years. And I just, man, it would be great to be able to do that. But it was rushing which is woven you know cattails and seagrass and stuff like that i didn't know how to do that but uh i talked mike into it and mike said go ahead (laughs) so uh, we had to teach ourselves how to um how to do cattails and seagrass rushing and so we made the chair that looks exactly like the one in cabildo and we wove the chair after looking at youtube videos and i I think they came out great you know they they look really this my favorite chair it's one of my really good customers right there is Brian from Elizabeth's. Hey, Chef Brian. Brian. How are you doing? Nice, nice to meet you. you. And why did Chip build your tables? We've been cook friends for 20 years. Um, he's a true craftsman, was in the kitchen, is here. That's why, man. Just excellent quality stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of working with Chip to get what you want for your restaurant? How is the customer working relationship like how does it work well with me and chip it's been a there's been a bunch of different ways that we've done it because we did a lot of uh, i've let him have some free reign downstairs on a whole bar where one of his assistants got very artistic and we used a lot of metal and some other uh in things that encompassed into it uh and then with the bar he was able to put together a one piece huge section of bar that was just gorgeous you know and we talked about that for what two years we had that one in the plan it was probably the longest kind of Kato sign when they were cleaning up mother-in-law lounge and man i knew he was a big fan and we love Kato. we had Kato up here for a while and we finally framed it and said brian man it belongs it belongs there he's got the Kato sign yeah stairs at the restaurant uh and then just a bunch of other signs that have uh the fence from the back that blew down in katrina i saved it like seven years later i think in 2012 was when we actually got to to put that back together and he took it all apart piece by piece put it back together so there's so it, it made the picture the mural stayed but you know the backing wasn't there and it was able to go up on the wall and be secure and really old school like pigs cooking pigs and looking happy about getting eaten kind of pictures that have always like so hilarious to me it's just yeah. insane but it was a, it was a it was a cool like folk art kind of yeah, thing kind of keep around you know right. it's, it's, it's part of the neighborhood that's been here for a long time 
the most important thing is how all of the furniture, all of those things translates to the customer experience at Elizabeth's. So does anybody remark to you about, all wow. Time. All the time. I said, you can see the brand underneath. See brands, everything he makes, he's got a brand, Monkey with the Fest. And then there's some other things that you take apart, you might find other interesting little notes <laughs> in. <laughs> <laughs> and he blushes i can't imagine he told me first of all you'll never make any money being a woodworker second of all which is so true and second of all everybody who walks in the shop i tell them that you're going into a vocation you better love it and it's like cooking you know some people make you know really successful like like brian but for the most part you work work and work and the second thing he told me was if if nobody notices the chair or notices the table, then you did a perfect job, which you think about it, it's so true. You know, if you don't notice it, it's great. It's, you know, in the beginning when the restaurant opens, people may comment about it. But after a while, it tends to disappear somewhat, which is perfect. It's great. It's the way it ought to be. I mean, all the, the furniture and the restaurant and, and everything you do should be invisible so that the chef can do his work and do and the waiter too i mean i have a lot of you know respect for front of the house stuff that you know should make everything else disappear except for you the experience yeah. well i'm thrilled that i was invited into your studio down here at monkey with a fez and that's a w-i-d would you like to tell me about the name <laughs> the last the last restaurant i was at um the owner really wanted everybody to wear hats in the kitchen and this was this was a, diff a different time I always wore my hair like really really short I don't want to wear a hat wear a hat I don't want to wear a hat so finally I had to put a hat on and to go visit customers out in the dining room so I bought a fez just to aggravate him <laughs> and it worked and but I was that monkey at the restaurant I was the guy that was washing the dishes, was staying late to order, to making sure the doors were locked, sleeping on the couch, going to the bar, then going back to work, and just on and on and on. I was the monkey at that last place, so with a fez, and that's what it, and that's all it is. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. That was Chip Martinson, owner of Monkey with a Fez. Custom furniture makers. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business for me to be involved in What is Galentine's Day? And when is it celebrated? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. 
Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is Galentine's Day and when is it celebrated? This 21st century pop culture phenomenon springs from an episode of the popular TV show, Parks and Recreation. Back in 2010, in the show's second season, comedian Amy Poehler's character, Leslie Nope proclaimed... It's the best day of the year. Every February 13th, my girlfriends and I leave our husbands and boyfriends at home, and we just come and kick it, breakfast style. Ladies celebrating ladies. It's like Lilith Fair, minus the angst, plus frittatas. So ladies, call up your gal pals and schedule that big Galentine's night out. Pancakes and syrup included. Goodness knows, that should take a little bit of the pressure off of Cupid. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. I'm in the mood for love, simply because you're near me. Funny, but when you're near me, I'm in the mood for love. On-the-job romance is not exactly an uncommon occurrence. After all, when like-minded people work closely together in any environment, it can certainly lead to attraction and sometimes something more. With the long and late hours required in the biz, restaurant kitchens have often set the stage for romance. But can it last? Sixteen years ago, Allison Vines Rushing and her husband Slade were not necessarily looking for love in the kitchen at Gerard's downtown, but love found them. We sat down with Slade and Allison to hear how it all started and how they've managed to keep it together in and out of the restaurant kitchen since. I'm Slade Rushing. I'm Allison Vines Rushing. Oh, my goodness. How I love the two of you. Two of my favorite chefs, and you're even married to each other. What a thing that is. So how in the world did this union come together in the first place? Well, we met at Gerard's downtown. Slade was the grill cook, and I got a job in the Garde Manger. And we hit it off really quickly. What really connected us was the fact that Slade had lived outside of the South. You know, he's from Mississippi, but he had lived a lot of places outside of the South. And I had just recently returned to the South from living outside of the South for a long time. So I think we kind of connected on that level a little bit, both being from small towns, but having gotten out and then returning and that whole kind of, wow, we're back here and 
you know, all that that entails. Romance can be very hard for two chefs working on the line. What happened that first Valentine's Day? <laughs> Do you want to tell that story or want me to tell it? <laughs> oh, it's such oh, a it good one. It sounds better if you tell it. Oh, it's such a good you one. Tell um, it. It's one of my favorites. Yes, but for chefs, Valentine's Day is not a holiday, period. It's a work day, and it's one of the busiest work days of the year. You just don't really celebrate it. So we worked together that Valentine's. Actually, we, we both worked doubles. So we worked, you know, lunch and dinner all day. And I think we had been dating, like, maybe four months at the time, something like that. We were there in the morning getting ready for lunch. And uh, I noticed Slade was, you know, kept, like, putting his arm over his work and just, like, not looking at me and just seem, <laughs> seeming very, you know, furtive. And then uh, when he was done, he brought it over to me. He had made, so romantic, he had cut little Cupid arrow bacons. He'd poached eggs and made some hollandaise, and he wrote, I love you in hollandaise on the plate with the Cupid arrow bacon, and then he cut little toasts, heart toasts. <laughs> with the, I mean, it was just That's, adorable. I have my moments. Really, yeah. you know? <laughs> That is adorable. If I did it now, she'd just say, what the hell is this? Go get the kids. So how did the romance grow and continue? How did you all end up getting married? When we met, I had moved from New York here. And Slade really wanted to move to New York. He had never lived in New York. And I loved New York. And I, I was like, yes, I'll absolutely go back. So very quickly, we left here and moved to New York together. And we had a little basement apartment in Brooklyn. We had nothing. I mean, for a while, we had a futon, you know, for a long time. That the previous cook that I actually (laughs) met, hadn't seen in years, I saw him at a restaurant I was staging at. And he said, you're moving here? Moving to New York? I'm about to leave to go to San Francisco. You ought to come look at my apartment before you leave. And I was like, yeah, let me come look at it. It worked out that way. He left us that futon. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I feel like everything kind of at that time really fell into place very well for us. You know, we, we both got jobs, and we really loved New York. We were super inspired by it. And, you know, when we come home to our little apartment after working all day, we would just kind of dream about, you know, if we had our own food, what would that be? What would we do? And so we just really kind of you know, started talking about our Southern heritage and the influence and, you know, our French learning, what we were learning from French chefs at the time and how we would incorporate those things. And, I mean, we just both really loved what we were doing. We love food. We love where we're at. And I think that really helped us be in love, you know, more and more. We worked separately for years, and then we ended up working together you know, Slade and I just really liked being around each other. We still love being around each other. And, uh, you know, a lot of married couples are like, oh, my gosh, I could never work with my husband. But, you know, I was always like, well, God, I mean, I, I love being around Slade. And we, we really enjoyed it. Well, I, I have to ask, for a man who says happy Valentine's Day with bacon and toast and eggs and hollandaise, how in the world do you propose? <laughs> um. I was going to try to do some goofy thing where I was going to take her to a sushi restaurant at this cool place uh, called Decibel in East Village. 
and I was I actually got in a cab, pick her up at work at Ducasse at the Essex house and you know, I walked up there and the French chef Didier would see me coming up to get her and she's coming down after a long night of service. He'd stare me up and down like, Ugh your fashion, Ugh. like the way I was dressed and I'm like, whatever, dude. And then so we get in the cab and it starts raining and she was wearing like a skirt and all this nice stuff because she knew we were going out. She left in chef clothes and she was really decked out, looking amazing. We get in the cab and it's raining and I'm like, you know, I couldn't wait. So I just proposed <laughs> her in a cab right there in front of the restaurant when it was raining. Oh. And I said, will you marry me? And here we are. Oh, that is just so, what a what a sweet, sweet story. So you open up this restaurant, Mila, and then you start having babies, huh? Yeah, but I mean, we were open. I'd probably say four or five years before. Mm, yeah, maybe four or five years before. And how do you make that decision? That it's time to have a baby when you also have a restaurant and you both work there. Well, we weren't owners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had been owners before. That didn't quite work out. And ownership is much different, really, than, you know, working a paid position as an executive chef, which, you know, is really nice. And after going through that whole ownership thing and kind of losing everything, then we got into this really great kind of comfortable feeling of, oh, okay, we can do this. We can have a life. We can have both. And we weren't constantly worried about losing it all, you know. So I think that had a lot to do with it, you know, that we were able to have a family and and felt confident doing that. Also, being two chefs, we were able to, when one wasn't there, the other one was. So one of us was always there. So we always had our eyes on it. But, you know, when the other one was home, they were taking care of, of a baby. And Slade, you know, worked with me on that. He'd be home with Ida Lou when I was at work, and I'd be home with her when he was at work, and it worked out really well. So, you know, we had a we had a big staff, and they supported us in all of those ways to to give us what we needed to have a family life. So we were we were really lucky to have that. I think. So now your life has moved on, and you're in a whole new interesting place because you're not working together. You're still a team. You're still really where there's a lot of work that goes on together, I know. Right. But when it comes to employment, you're not doing that. What's it like in the new life? It's How nice. Long? It's very nice not working together. I mean, it was awesome working together, and we loved it. We really did. But, you know, now with children and home life, you know, you have all these other things that you have to figure out and all these other battles, so to speak, that you've got to approach with raising children. Um, work doesn't necessarily have to be one of those. And you used to, we would get home, we'd kind of rehash the whole day. Work kind of never ended. You know, we brought home at work. We talked about work at home. And that just doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, certainly Slade, if he wants to talk about something from work, can. And I'm interested because I don't know anything about it. So it's really nice. I'm, we're not rehashing anything. He's discussing work and I love to hear about it but it's not you know kind of this this thing that just feeds all of the time and never stops you know we have our home life now and it's great and we need that with kids um and then it's really you know it's about the kids when we're at home it's just about being a family and so it's been awesome it's been great and what's the food like at home these days <laughs> it's it's 
good. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's some days where it's mac and cheese. Come on, but but yeah. it's still it's done in a great way. The thing is, is the kids are a little picky. Kids the are kids little picky. are picky. We talked about kids that. Kids are picky. Um, yeah. But it's. The food always tastes better when someone else cooks for you, but especially when she's cooking for me, it's really good. So, huh. well, thank you. I, I usually enjoy it when he cooks, so I don't have to do it. But we we share for the most part. <laughs> Award-winning chefs, husband and wife team, Slade and Allison Bynes rushing. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting right from your computer or smartphone. Louisiana Eats is also available from iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport-Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from the Bourbon House, from oysters to redfish, serving fresh Gulf seafood and American whiskey on Bourbon Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eat studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.